I'm Rob. And I'm Marty. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On episode 46, we will talk about the artist formerly known as Credit Suisse, the return of the big game in Africa, the growing list of trade distortions that's coming about with all the various geopolitical factors that we've been discussing, and of course, watches and wonders. And later we'll talk with Jana Dreyer of Borderlux about why the EU has decided to regulate everything, everywhere, all the time. Oscar's jokes have not run out yet. <laughs> why it's not good that it's all quiet on the WTO front. Hashtag German Oscars. And the top gun of fast food in Geneva. It's uh, Alamir. <laughs> and we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes. And so let's get into it before the Oscar jokes run out of steam. Welcome to episode 46. It's the atomic number of palladium, which is going to get it out there right away. It's a rare and lustrous silvery white metal discovered in 1803 by an English chemist I will not name because nobody will remember after I say it. More than half the supply of palladium they might remember, and its congener platinum is used not in watches, but in catalytic converters. In Staten Island, these are premium pieces to get stolen. We do want to steal this. Yeah. What else can we do with the number 46? You party? can be the 46th president of the United States if you're Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Uncle Joe. 46 is an east-west highway also that is completely within the state of New Jersey. Beautiful. Very scenic. And most importantly, 46 is the number of an NFL defense made famous by Rob's very own hometown, Chicago Bears. Ouch. You're welcome. If you just Google it. <laughs> just google it moving on public service announcement i need to clarify to listeners a lot of them commented i realized that they think that i had a gwyneth paltrow situation last year where i ran into somebody on the ski slope because of my accident i should let everybody know and clarify that it was not me i fell on my own without anybody around me so it's basically me in the mountain and all mountain we know is like the clash song your wife was right behind you yeah speaking of my wife being behind me gwyneth paltrow is gwynnescent so that is, I guess, good to know. It also turns out that the guy who hit her or did not hit her or maybe had a brain trauma, which sort of stuck with me a bit when I first read it, is a little crazy. He was crazy to go up against Gwyneth in a courtroom. I'm paraphrasing. He said he needed to sue her because if celebrities are not held accountable, then I think, quote, Jeffrey Epstein happens. Yeah, he's not wrong. Plus, would you want to go up against <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow in a courtroom where she's acting all whatever folks act like? With the jade egg and uh, me and her have one thing in common, though. <laughs> Don't one, think she focused on that. She's learned to tune it out. Me and her have one thing in common, and that is a bone broth. I love it, especially in winter. It's great, especially if you're on keto. Hashtag, I have no idea what you're talking about. Bone broth. No, I still don't have it. Even if you say it three times or four times, I still don't know what you're talking about. Google it no, or have chat GPT no do it. No idea what that is. Okay, I'm sorry. Anyway, I should also mention that you can and should subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. Smash sure, that button. And make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon after you smash it. Better yet, you can also share it with a friend or stranger sitting next to you on the bus like Michelle does. Grab their phone and program it in there. You just make the first move. If there's a bust of Putin, just walk away. But I would after. say do this first and then go. And then walk That's away. That's maybe a red flag, but just go. <laughs> just go after you do this thing. Red flags aside, you could also find us anywhere, everywhere, all at once, wherever you get your podcasts, hashtag Oscars, and subscribe to all of them. And why not leave us a review? What do you have to add to this beautiful intro segment? Well, I do have a piece of listener feedback that I think it's going to be important everybody be aware of. It's consumer information. What I wanted to let you know, and of course, a very sensitive topic, if you want to get frisky with your partner 
I'm asking you to please, please carefully manage your playlist. One of our listeners wrote in that he was just getting to an important moment with his friend. Significant other. With a significant other. When the playlist moved from smooth jazz to our voices. I'm still waiting for what's the issue here. And he experienced, let's say, pause. There was a pause in the moment. Shock and awe. Well, he scrambled and got the machine, started punching it until our voices stopped. Now, I don't think that's a good way to deal with it. Wait, he didn't put it louder? But I think we can all agree that, well, trade planning is good for tooth pain. We've heard that. It can calm you. Doing laundry. It, it can make you forget about your commute. We really don't recommend this podcast as a backdrop for lovemaking. Would you say that's fair? I would not recommend it as a backdrop for, um, yeah, I'm not going to say those two words, but yeah. That. <laughs> Who do you call it? Shenanigans? Uh, for calling the stork. <laughs> calling the stork. The stork. So jumping into the news story, the important ones at least, on this episode, first one up, I guess we have to talk, it's been a couple weeks old now, we've been able to marinate on it a little bit, so that helps, because it's not strictly a hot take, even though we want it to be, but we have to talk about Credit Suisse, and I guess right after the Toblerone losing the ability to show the Matterhorn and their chocolate bar packaging before they moved to Bratislava, I think they're showing the suburbs there, a slightly less important development, I guess we have to admit, Credit Suisse being subsumed and now becoming part of UBS is, is a big story in Switzerland. Although not as big in the U.S., I sent my buddy a text. I said, wow, this is huge. Can't believe this is happening. His reply, three words, want, want, want. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the best pieces of commentary I've heard about this whole situation. Yeah. I think in Switzerland's a big issue, a big iconic brand that falls, like Swiss Air, back in right after September 11th. And it happened very quickly. You sent out a joke, says, what are the things you can buy? On a Sunday in Switzerland, and it includes bread and cheese and beer and Credit, Credit Suisse. Suisse. <laughs> so it was very surprising. And I think also there's a lot of hand wringing about the size of this bank compared to the size of the Swiss economy. So the Swiss economy probably isn't big enough to bail out a UBS of this size. I think the last point is that there's a huge amount now of hand wringing about jobs. So in Geneva, this could mean loss of up to a thousand or more jobs. Mm. And the retail banking sector here becomes more concentrated. But about retail banking, I think we have to bring in the Swiss person on the podcast, Michelle. I'm also Swiss, but okay. And our Credit Suisse client. The real Swiss is what he means. How have you been living this? Well, I want to go into conspiracy theories a little bit for this part, because I feel like Credit Suisse, before being sold, sold all of their addresses, email, whatever, to other banks. And I have nonstop gotten different publicities to join other banks while Credit Suisse is going down. I thought you were going to say George Soros, something, something George Soros <laughs> after conspiracy. No, I stay in the small conspiracy theory. <laughs> small C. <laughs> Not globalization. So they're already soliciting you for your business. It shows, and one of the things about this is Credit Suisse retail bank in Switzerland is extraordinarily profitable. It's absolutely fine. It's New York the Credit Suisse investment bank that kind of ruined things. I take that personally. But also, you mentioned Swiss Air before. I mean, it is, I still associate Swiss airlines now with Swiss Air. So maybe what Credit Suisse should do is just drop the Swiss and call it Credit Swiss Air did. <laughs> I think we've gotten a lot further in this piece of commentary than the thousands and thousands of hours. Because this discussion. is why we do. We let it marinate. We steal other people's best bits, and then we package them as our own. 
but no. Welcome to the podcasting world. Well, <laughs> but I think it's quite interesting because we've talked a lot about the issue of competition law. So is this good or bad for competition in the banking industry? Of right. course, in Switzerland, probably right. not. And we're seeing, let's say, other types of ways of dealing with competition law. You were mentioning a recent issue with Alibaba. Yeah, it's true. This, I guess, comes at an opportune moment since we're talking about Credit Suisse being subsumed and becoming a bigger part of a, another bank, UBS. It's a different sector, of course, but in the tech sector in China, now it's been announced, I think, last week that Alibaba will be broken up into six different companies, so more focused, more streamlined, and they all have six individual IPOs. Jack Ma emerged from hiding or hibernation to announce this. Very little vacation before that. Very meekly. Apparently, he took up painting in Tokyo for the last year. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, well, we've all done that. Uh, yeah, so we talked about how the anti-IPO sort of had the plug pulled a couple of weeks after some comments made by Jack Ma. Now, as I said, he's come out of hiding and announced that it's going to be broken up into six companies. This, I guess, for me at least, initially stood in stark contrast to what we saw with Credit Suisse, even though you pointed out that it is a different sector. It also seems much more straightforward to the point and action-oriented, if you will, than what we see in the U.S. They've started talking about how Amazon is doing certain things that they're not happy with. They've started these lawsuits. The EU has done so, of course, as well. But it doesn't seem to be moving fast enough. Yeah, for sure. And I think we'll see the EU's coming out, as we mentioned probably many times, a lot. With this huge anvil of regulation. Regulation is hot now as industrial policy and so on. I don't think anybody's arguing about the fact that places like Amazon and Google have market power. They have excessive market power. The question is, is it damaging consumers and how to deal with it? And I think it's a story we'll continue talking about. It's one of those accompanying policies it has nothing to do with trade. It has to do with domestic economies, but gives trade a bad name. It's one of these things that people don't think about. Antitrust is not really the sexy thing, unless you're a brandy. Who's the guy in the 80s? Bork. Um, then it is. <laughs> the guy's not a verb? Yeah, that, that guy. <laughs> to get yeah. borked. But it does help in lubricating economies all over the world. So I think it's something that goes unseen, but it plays an important role. And I think we're sort of a shift in thinking. Speaking of China, so it appears that the EU and the US have finally recognized that Africa is the quote-unquote whale. Oscar. Not the Oscar winner, but now focusing on encountering China or their new sort of theater. More importantly, the question is, and I think it's an important one, is that is this all to the benefit of Africa? So we've seen that China has slowed down on the Belt and Road Initiative. We're wondering, does that give the EU and the US more time to catch up? China is well ahead of them in terms of natural resources. So they've bought up, for example, lots of the lithium ore deposits, and they're very much well ahead in being able to make those into usable parts for car batteries and things as such, even though the US and the rest are sort of now just catching up. So it seems that, again, the theme here is that the U.S. and the West in general are playing catch-up, even though China has that big lead. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they say the stock of investment for the West is higher, but of course the flow, so China's been investing much faster. But we've read a recent article in Nikkei Asia about they've slowed now. We also read that some of their investments are becoming more troubled, and maybe they're hitting the same wall everybody else has hit. Is that a Great Wall of China joke? I hope Th not. Thanks, folks. Dear God, I hope uh, not. Trademark. So we also know that China is now a major lender for developing countries, especially in Africa, and that now when there's debt distress, a lot of the negotiations start with China, and China becomes a kind of lender of last resort. So this kind of Western institutions like the IMF are playing themselves off against China. So we do see this competition kind of maybe getting a little stronger, and the U.S. is an example of a country that's just waking up and saying, hmm, 
what should we do now? And trying this charm offensive. So they had the African Leaders Summit in December. They had trips by the vice president, the treasury secretary, the secretary of state, trying to kind of use soft power in a way and to try to build trade and investment relationships with Africa without talking about market access. We're not going to do any trade agreements, non-traditional trade agreements, but we're going to try to do it all without that. And we'll see if it makes a difference. I think African countries are on a much better footing to manage this competition maybe than they were in the Cold War and to use it to their maybe advantage or at least to act as partners to both. And the U.S. is really been forced to deny that they're telling people not to be partners with China. They've been forced to say over and over again, we want to have a positive model. We want people to come towards us, not to run away from anybody else. So it's a very different world. I'm more impressed that the list was so exhaustive. I think the list of people who did not attend is even shorter than the ones. The number did. of U.S. officials who have yeah. not gone yeah. to Africa. Yeah. yeah. I think it was exactly. all of them except for uh, Bob. Bobby, Bobby Bob, Lighthizer. I miss you, Bob. Anyway, moving on. There is also a growing number of stories, which you've seen recently over the last couple of weeks and months, on the trade-distorting effects of tariffs, sort of export controls and other similar policies. So these are things that if you're a layperson, you probably think, well, what does this do for me? But they actually have quite a, quite a big impact, which we're only sort of just seeing now. What was a trickle now has become, I don't want to say a spigot opening, but we're seeing more and more of these stories. I don't know if that's confirmation bias because I'm looking for it, but that's another podcast episode. So we've seen, for example, about how this Made in America sales pitch is getting bigger and bigger. Our, the person we had on, the reporter from the New York Times, Peter Goodman, had a recent article on how um, a sock manufacturer, sort of an artisanal sock manufacturer, if you can call it that, was producing their socks in China, but because of the trade tensions that were going on over the last couple of years, plus the fact that China was in the news for not so great reasons because of Xinjiang and all of the alleged human rights abuses there, that they have moved production back to the U.S. and hoping that that is a selling point, even though it should be noted that the prices will go up. The California olive industry was also in the news, showing how trade-distorting tariffs actually are not great for California olive growers, or at least a very, very small percentage. Uh, it also seems that Brexit has done the opposite of what was intended and boosted French and Irish ports. So Brexit is the gift that keeps on giving for us as a podcast yeah. because there's plenty to talk Absolutely. about. So we've seen that the port of Dover and Calais is actually sort of not, I don't want to say ground to a halt, but it's become much, much harder to get goods from one port to another. EU companies are now using Irish ports to do the same thing. And so the real winner here is not UK, but different Irish ports. And these are things that I think people actually had calls. It should not be a surprise. So it's quite a long list. I don't know what you think, Rob. Am I just sort of confirming my own biases by looking for these stories or is this a thing? No, I mean, maybe we're looking for stories that confirm a little bit the economic reality, but it is the economic reality. So the California olive case is the US put tariffs, then the EU puts tariffs and it becomes a war in the end. As you say, the industry loses. Not the EU, but I think it was actually the Spanish industry that put anti-dumping or uh, countervailing uh, tariffs. This sock manufacturer is doing made in America, but in fact, they're still more expensive than the average. So they're using it as a pitch, but trade policy didn't make them competitive. But Rob, we love anything with artisanal in front of the name. And they're not artisanal, it's a big factory. And I think this this is great. We look at these unintended consequences. We have this, these Irish and other ports who are benefiting from Brexit because, and by the way, this is not the most efficient way for goods to move. It's just a distortion. It's a pure distortion. And the last one that you would put here but didn't mention is Huawei 
to get around U.S. sanctions and U.S. export controls is actually replacing parts with other parts. So they don't have to use U.S. engineering. They don't have to use U.S. parts. This, of course, isn't the most efficient way. It's probably not benefiting the U.S., but it's the way trade will work around. Yeah, and so Jeff Goldblum was right. Trade will uh, find trade, a way. Trade will find a way. I don't trade trade it. will find a way. Now you sound like Jeff Sessions. Ian Dreyer is the founder and editor of Borderlex, launched in 2014. That's my line, but anyway. Ian steers Borderlex's editorial activities and particularly likes to write about the politics shaping EU trade policy, systemic issues at the World Trade Organization, also known as the WTO, international trade disputes, the nexus between security and trade, and EU-Asian trade relations, and that keeps her awful busy. Before launching her publishing activity in London, Iana worked as a policy analyst in think tanks with a focus on international trade and international energy policy, my old job, consulting on an occasion for governments as well. Iana worked with the European Center for International Political Economy, the Institute Montaigne, and the EU Institute for Security Studies. She's also worked for the Financial Times Group and trained in journalism. A dual French and German citizen with special affinity UK, Iana currently spends most of her time between Brussels, Paris, and London. So Iana, thanks for joining us on the podcast. So happy to have you on. Why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the trade business? Thank you very much for inviting me and having me on this podcast. I look forward to this conversation and it's great to be part of, <laughs> of this adventure. Why I got into this business, I think it's about bananas. So I was born in Honduras, Central America in the late 70s. And I don't know if you know, but Honduras was the first country that uh, American journalists called the Banana Republic. And I remember the side of the landscape with all these big banana plantations everywhere. And I knew from the beginning in my childhood that exporting bananas was very important for this country. Our family moved back to Europe in the 80s. And then in the 80s, 90s, you had these gap disputes about bananas. So I think that sparked my original interest. The one thing we do really well in this podcast is bringing it back to me. And I have a great story about <laughs> bananas. This is not a joke. The Colombian yeah. trade negotiator at the WTO once like, sat me down and went on a long Maybe it was a 30-minute sort of, I want to say rant because it was polite, but it was a 30-minute diatribe about telling me how she could tell the difference between Colombian bananas oh. and Honduran Oh, bananas. I'm not getting into that conversation. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really awkward for a while, but I was thinking she was joking, but she was telling me that the Colombian bananas are, yeah, they're different. That's if I can put it PG rated. <laughs> They're different. And that's how you can tell the difference from Honduran bananas. It's a real story. It's a real story. I still have nightmares. This is like when people have the dreams where they're naked in class. That's me going back that I really sit through that 30 minute the banana conversation. Like thinking that somebody might be punked. Somebody <laughs> videotaping this. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so if we could get into yeah. EU trade policy, bananas or not, it seems that the EU has sort of decided to regulate everything related to trade all at once, to quote a movie which just won the Oscars recently. Can you help us understand some of these key points and what you think the impact will be? So will the EU be leading the way or simply make its market less attractive, which is a fear that many have? I think the EU is facing many crises at once. There is one that is geopolitical and existential in many ways due to the geopolitics we're in and the institutions of the EU are not necessarily made for that kind of environment. There were fair weather 
institutions. So I think part of that is about making up for it. That's the whole part of the new trade policy that is coming out that aims to strengthen the strategic autonomy. We want to be less subject to interference or blackmailing by big bad powers outside. One aspect that stems from that, Ursula von der Leyen, when she appeared suddenly as a candidate, she said she would lead a geopolitical commission. So this is a context for some of what is happening in trade policy. And the other one is the climate crisis. There is real demand in Europe, the electorate for action on climate. In many ways, whatever is still there in terms of EU legitimacy in the public in Europe, certainly in countries like France, where I live now, it's environment. So I think that's why the action is there. We have this European Green Deal, which regulates everything from a climate perspective. Everywhere. Um, inevitably. <laughs> All at once. All at once. <laughs> it's part of it. Do you think it's too much at once? I mean, so we have a deforestation. Yeah. We have the thing against fast fashion. We have the digital citizenry thing. So, I mean, on that, there was a famous quote. I think it was attributed to Socrates. He said that if a subsidy falls in the forest and nobody can use it, does it make a noise? <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be this regulatory competition now that we're talking about subsidies. The EU, as you said, knows how to do it. It's their bread and butter so to speak. But there seems to be competition coming from the U.S. and the IRA bill. I didn't come up with that acronym. Seems to have caught them a bit by surprise. They're playing a bit of catch up and it seems to have created this subsidy race, some say to the bottom. We've said in the past that green is good, but is it that this competition is sort of distorting in any way? I mean, the whole green deal, carbon border, just deforestation, the tougher conditionality on labor and involvement environment, due diligence, etc. Certainly making the EU a more expensive place to do business. Mm. Partly it's demand, partly it's rich country demand. It's going to be more difficult and I think we'll have a social reckoning about this. What I see in terms of who, how partners respond, it's a mix. Obviously many are annoyed, higher costs. On the other hand, I notice also there are in some emerging markets, emerging middle classes that aspire to kind of higher standards. And I think having a trade negotiation with the EU supports it. So this is very ambivalent. What I don't agree with with the EU is that it's not able to be very generous on market access. Greening subsidy, I mean, that comes on top, <laughs> obviously, the whole trade policy and it links into trade policy. Who wins? What I observe in the EU and obviously also on the other side of the Atlantic is that it's generally in the environmental area or chips, semiconductors as well. It's less competitive firms that benefit. They have very smooth lobbying operations, chasing subsidies, playing out one against the other. It's very impressive. Uh, and clearly those subsidies go to com companies that didn't do very well before. I mean, I'm just quoting Intel on semiconductors. I don't know if you've read The Chips War. It tells that story. And chasing subsidies yeah. is, is part of that. Same with our energy firms. The Chinese just got there earlier with their own subsidies as well. I mean, very problematic there. So I think that's going to happen. What we'll say, what we want to see how much of this actually works and takes off. I suppose that some of it will stick at some point. I mean, every big subsidy action at some point does stir something. So we might have new products, new productions at some point that might 
become more competitive over time. We will need to have real evaluations with real economists looking at the data, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's early to say, yeah. Do you think that the IRA surprised EU leaders? I think the EU is very piqued by the fact that its companies are almost explicitly being excluded because the EU's subsidy schemes on paper are not discriminatory. Subsidies are there for anyone who provides the required technology under certain conditions and there's no nationality or other requirement. Whereas the US IRA has for explicit exclusions, you know, production must be North American or Critical inputs must come from FTA partners. There is no way with the EU. And that obviously is part of a long trajectory over the last years where the EU has always felt that it's being excluded, disrespected, et cetera, by the United States. Yeah, and I think that it's another example where people say the U.S. probably didn't have a principled approach to rules-based yeah. trading system. They thought it was in their interest to do it. And now they're maybe thinking, ah, maybe there's some other stuff that's in the U.S. interest. Is that the John Mearsheimer book I see in your pocket? Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But that kind of brings us to the rules-based trading system, because all we're talking about, which are the big developments in trade, so whether it's EU regulation, whether it's U.S. IRA Act, whether it's the U.K., ATS, whatever it could be, none of it's happening in the WTO. Uh, Maybe I'm summarizing a little bit of detail there. So that, meanwhile, we're sitting here in Geneva, and it's getting even more boring because folks aren't even coming here to negotiate. They've even now gone to a kind of separate but equal arbitration system where it's sort of parties mutually arbitrate and they take dispute resolution, which has been blocked for some time out of the WTOs. Should anyone care? I mean, is the WTO, it's kind of going around in circles a little bit? Yes, me, no, I think it's a huge problem. I think we're going back to a pre-World War II world many ways where Trade policy is something a bit more imperial in that sense of big powers, setting Mm. terms bilaterally, regionally, leveraging the trade policy more for other geopolitical purposes. That's the world we're in. It's a world where there is a relative decline of the big hegemon, the United States, underwriting this multilateral system, partly on their terms, and it's the abandonment by the U.S. of this system that is called causing eruptions. And the trend's been there for a while. I don't think it started with Trump. But we're there and we're not going to go back. We will probably have small deals. Hopefully we'll have a fish deal. We might have investment facilitation deal, which is a very soft agreement. And then disputes are being taken outside the WTO bilaterally. I mean, the EU has already adjudicated three panel disputes under FTAs. It didn't do that before. Well, US has its own. USMCA disputes. So that that's where the world is going. But this, there is something asymmetrical about that, the new order in that sense, that will structurally benefit the bigger powers more than the smaller ones. But it will just have the veneer of something legally adjudicated. It's no longer the Yeah, general, exactly. And there will be a bit of taking into consideration of the other side. Those were the days. Gunboats get more. Old gunboats get more back in my day. (laughs) So I think now we get to the important part. The good stuff. This is where we're going to ask you a few questions about the meaning of life. Here. And kebab, of course. (laughs) So this is kind of a complicated question because you're kind of from a little bit from everywhere. But we always ask, what have you learned about your home country from living outside it when you look back? But first you have to define your home country. Yeah, that is the point. I am transnational by birth. <laughs> I was born as the daughter of a Chilean-German father and a French mother in a Central American country, in Honduras. 
they were sort of expats over there. And I was a gringuita, as we would call it. What I've learned about my home country is I've been forced to look at things critically very early because you're always falling between the cracks of systems, cultures, way of thinking. So I think it makes jobs like mine possible because you work in trade and international environment, navigating diplomacy. It's a world where I feel rather at ease instead of traditional national settings. And to what I can say is that there's a, a question of self-awareness sometimes of countries of thinking they're the center of the world. Mm. And obviously they aren't. <laughs> yeah. And we know that's true for only one country. Whichever, yeah. America, whichever America. country. <laughs> Obviously, the smaller one's less than the bigger one, but... Well, at work, I'm called Gringo Bob, so it's nice that there's another Gringo on the call here with us. When we need to get Rob at the office, we say, go get the Gringo. Go get the Gringo. And then I'm not sure if they're talking about Rob or that movie with Mel Gibson. (laughs) So subsidies are in the news, so that we can agree on. If you could subsidize anything apart from healthcare, what would it be? Like Prada, beer... Kebab. Baguettes, kebabs. Well, baguettes, forget, they're already subsidized. What should we be subsidizing? Kebab. What should we uh, be subsidizing? I, I'm not going to be funny on this one because I think it's a serious matter. I am for getting around. I'm not those environmentalists who want to keep us at home. But I think we need to get back to more efficient in terms of resource use ways of getting around. Like Bruce Springsteen, I was born in the U.S., so I don't know what <laughs> petrol is. I just call it gas. <laughs> Yeah. I just call it my freedom. I just call it my freedom. That's what I call it. Freedom liquid. Freedom water. So we're scientific here, very rigorous. And as a frequent visitor to Geneva, you, I'm sure, have eaten this native food we have here called kebab. So what's your favorite kebab in Geneva? And I'll give you a hint here. Alamir. Parfum de Beirut. It's the first I, I, one. I eat pizza when I go to Geneva. Mostly not because I don't like kebab, but I do like to know where the meat from comes from. So I... I don't walk into shops like that. That's the first issue. Uh, but, <laughs> this is, this is the don't ask, don't tell policy in Geneva. I think it's called Miss Kamal, mm. that kind of place. I always end up there with a glass. Ah, of yeah. Okay, okay. Too many. Around the corner yes. from yeah, Alamir, exactly. you'll be happy to know. Skandal, we can, we, I think we can all get behind that. That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Yana, before we go, where can people go to find the work you and Borderlex are doing? Well, just go on borderlex.net online. This is a news analysis commentary website on trade policy in Europe broadly. So the EU, the UK, Geneva, we try to cover as much as possible. We've grown from being a one-woman show to three permanent journalists. Excellent. Excellent. We'll be looking forward to the future articles on kebabs and subsidies. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The kebab index. Kebabities. Yeah, it sounds good. So, Rob, you having a bad hair day? You're looking a little worse for wear there. Well, I'm worried about the upcoming warm weather, Artie. You should be because you have a lot of facial overgrowth. Your hair is literally falling in my cereal bowl. I guess what I've been really thinking about is what could be the hair removal options for somebody like me? I think there is a solution for you, Rob. Have you heard about Clinique Muller in Lausanne? This is just across the road in Lausanne, Switzerland, the other Geneva. You can take care of all your hair removal needs, even if you are a man, so don't feel ashamed. Wow, Artie, this is going to be a great summer. It will be, and it will be for all of our male listeners as well if they sign up to Clinique Muller right in Lausanne, Switzerland. Check out the link below for more information. So, Artie, that brings us to our next segment. This is where our correspondent, Michelle Olguin, talks to us about the vibe shift. 
Tell us, Michelle, is globalization finally dead? So last week and this week, we talked a little bit about the Oscars, and we discovered that Rob hasn't watched any of the movies that were nominated, right? I watched that thing about everything everywhere sometimes. Oh, you watched it? A lot of times. What did you think? Yeah. I thought it was really long. The thing we didn't talk about was the red carpet, specifically how many celebrities were looking super, super skinny, especially celebrities who weren't skinny before. And if you believe the rumors, it's because they're on drugs. They're actually on a specific drug, and it's a prescription called Ozempic. After making the rounds on social media, Ozempic has become the new kind of fad diet in the U.S. It's intended to be used as a medication for diabetics, but that's pretty much a thing of the past since the manufacturer has said, oh, let's try to get more people on Ozempic instead of trying to get a better supply chain. And they've launched their brand, WeGovi, which is specifically marketed for weight loss and is soon going to be available in Europe. A spokesperson for the brand followed this up with saying, we are really looking forward to make sure that we can only launch if we can provide the product, which, yeah, that's the basic idea behind any purchase. So really good for understanding that basic part of business. But with factories running 24 hours a day and the drugs set to launch with an online prescription service in the UK, which basically means that anybody can get it, I'm wondering what is this new reality where supply and demand doesn't really apply anymore and we're just operating on vibes and a prayer? What do you guys think? Are you taking Ozempic? I mean, like, just to ask him for a friend. How quickly does Ozempic (laughs) work? Yes, exactly. Does it have any side effects? And will I look like a red carpet? (laughs) You'll look like a red carpet, yeah. (laughs) I think, so Ozempic is supposed to just make you feel full and maybe nauseous. That's basically it. Like kebab from Alamir. Except you will lose weight. I mean, if you eat Alamir a lot, you will lose weight. I'm pretty sure if you have too much insulin in your system, it's also not a great thing. If you eat Alamir? No. It's, it's not a, a good it's thing. It's a I drug agree. for diabetics, which I don't know. What are the diabetics oh, doing? Artie's they can't get those Epic because Sam Smith is too busy taking those Epic. <laughs> like, what do diabetics Smith. do? Die? That's basically the policy for the company. They're like, no. Whatever, diabetics don't matter. We'll just do this as a weight loss thing. Somewhere a politician is saying, just let the market decide. I mean, this is a classic, like they're all looking for off-label uses for the drugs, and especially like chronic or really fun uses, where anybody who's not even sick could potentially use this drug. What color is the pill? I think it's not a pill, it's a lifestyle. What? How often do you have to inject it? Like right before the Oscars? I don't. No, 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 no. You have to do it before. It's like a diet. For example, when this podcast eventually goes to YouTube and video, like, how quickly before we record the video will I have to inject myself with Ozempic? Apparently, each package only effect. comes with three. So, Center. I thought perhaps we could just use ChatGPT to create deep fakes of ourselves and then we don't really have to take Ozempic. Yeah, that's good. And I can just enjoy the kebab without the Ozempic. <laughs> <laughs> Make it two kebabs, hold the Ozempic. Alamir has exactly the same effect and it's quite a lot cheaper. Yeah, it flushes the system. It's and the like su- supply chain's fine. It's like the colonoscopy thing you have to drink. <laughs> They're right out. So globalization is still a thing. It's still a thing. Globalization's dead. It flushes out the system. Thanks, everybody. Not sponsored. Not sponsored. So, folks, that brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe it was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. So, on this week's local news, Artie, you're really going to take the lead here. You wanted to talk to us about skiing. You said already take the lead here like it wasn't already the the fact. In the joke segment. There we go. Okay. At least you know where we're going. (laughs) I want to qualify that. Thank you. 
So I alluded to Gwyneth Paltrow. I had that public service announcement for listeners who thought I hit somebody, which I didn't. The mountain hit me. I think we wanted to share an important message about being safe out there. I think it's important that listeners know that if you're going to hit anybody, make sure you're rich before you do it. But can you, for instance, you did hit the slope pretty hard. Can the slope sue you? Multiple times. Unfortunately, no. Can you sue the slope? And you can't get any insurance money out of it. Very un-American. The mountain is apparently not, doesn't have an insurance policy. (laughs) It's unsuable. Yeah. So just make sure that you check off a few boxes. For example, don't ski while drunk, watch where you're going, or just don't do it at all. I think it's the big one I learned. Don't ski. Just don't ski ski and no accident will happen. I agree entirely. Cheaper. The other thing I want to talk about, this one really juiced my gears. Very important. Last week was Watches and Wonders, and I think it's the right time to maybe think about starting and building a collection if you're Emmanuel Macron, especially. Yeah. You know, last week or two weeks ago, he got caught taking off his watch. It was a really weird interaction because apparently he said he was banging it too much on the table. So in one shot, he had the watch on. The next shot, he didn't. And then... That's like the Barbara Streisand effect. People actually focused on the fact that he had a watch and they said, oh, he's out of touch and he's got a really luxury watch. And my response was, well, it's not really that nice of a watch. It's a little expensive. Only $500. No, it's like two, three K. Two or three thousand. It's not that expensive, <laughs> that, that was folks. A ju- that was a joke. Get over it. That's anyway, it was Watches and Wonders last week. There was yep. a gazillion watches. Big conference. None of which I can probably afford. Yeah. Julia Roberts was here. Julia Roberts was here. David Beckham was here. He got paid by Tudor to take some really sad photos. He didn't really look too enthusiastic and because he wasn't wearing a Rolex and it was instead of Tudor. <laughs> Julia Roberts was here. Like you said, she really glammed it up. I really enjoyed the shuttle buses to the... The traffic. Uh, they were basically everywhere in front of me and behind me when I was trying to cycle from home to work. So you were not, in fact, in the bike lane. You were cycling in the bus lane, proving my point that cyclists suck because <laughs> you don't Remember, stay in my, your lane. Remember, March is open season. I do have an important public service announcement here. There was somebody that was caught in a nearby canton here in Valais going 110 kilometers per hour on a scooter. And I think this guy probably passed me on a bike lane a couple days ago. Sorry. (laughs) Was that you? No comment. (laughs) This is just a way to get to Watches and Wonders. I don't drive anything with two wheels and I don't ski. So just any Both of those are out. So both of those are out. So, you so I would say to our listeners, please keep it under 100 kilometers an hour. In a 30 zone? In a 30 zone on your scooter when you're going by me on a bike lane because I'm suffering. But not if the, the cyclist is in the street and not in the bike lane. That's so fair game. He's on the bike lane or she with their partner, which could be a he or a she or anything else, exactly. looking very stylish, usually with some sort of shoulder bag going up the hill faster than I am. I don't appreciate it. I think you're angry with yourself because you can't cycle faster. (laughs) That's for another podcast. It's about me. Is that about me again? I'm just thinking the podcast should be about me. I know that hasn't been our business model so far. That's not the bit. The joke is that Artie makes it about himself. (laughs) Okay. That's the business model, folks. The shtick is it's all about Artie, even though it's not. So we'll keep watching the wires, folks, and keep you informed of any important developments. But especially those about watching. Well, folks, that wraps up episode 46, brought to you by the tightening of China's Belt and Road. Not a euphemism. Goldblum's Law of Trade. Trade will find a way. Doesn't sound like that. And tech layoffs. And our thanks to Yana Dreyer for joining us to talk all things EU regulations, subsidies, and, of course, her thoughts on chomping pizza at Skondal. We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Olguin and Valentina Saponara, for highlighting the vibe ship as well and helping him produce this and every TS episode. 
please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your really podcast. anywhere you get your podcast. Michelle Yo movie. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We and like Spotify. reviews. We like good reviews, especially. You don't read them, but anyway, you can also follow us on Twitter at TradeSplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining, or email us your questions, comments the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen, listen responsibly. responsibly. Go to Alamir. <laughs>